You're listening to The Weekly Brew with Austin Statton, Jeremy Paxton, and Hunter Atkins. It's time to sit back, relax, and be informed. Welcome to episode 119 of the Weekly Brew Podcast. My name is Austin Statton, and I am joined here by Jeremy Paxton. And this is our, I guess, our last podcast before Christmas. I don't know. Are we going to do a podcast at Christmas? We'll find out. Uh, Anyways, Jeremy, uh, it's been an interesting week here. And, uh, you know, before we get into all of that, you know, all of the the Roy Moore stuff, the net neutrality, uh, again, the atrocious Texans who, as we are recording, are down 45 to 7. That's terrible. Yeah. I I, I can't (laughs) even watch it. This is, I mean, whatever. It's the Texans. I should expect it. Sundays are for naps now because the Texans (laughs) are for naps. But we do have two really interesting guests on today. And and the first one is going to be Chris Yandel, who spent more than a decade uh, working in college athletics as an athletic administrator uh, at Baylor, uh, Miami, Georgia Tech. Marshall, uh, University of Louisiana. I'm probably forgetting a few schools, uh, but he is actually going to join us because he's working on a PhD right now. And, and part of his research is discussing amateurism in college athletics. And it's a really fascinating discussion uh, that I think you're going to enjoy. And of course, Jeremy and I will come back at the end of the show to recap that. And also, we're going to speak with Thomas Manning, who is the CEO and founder of Crypto Bay Holdings. And we're going to talk a little cryptocurrency. And if you're not familiar with cryptocurrency, you've probably heard the name Bitcoin. And Bitcoin has been in the news so much the last two to three weeks because of its, uh, you know, sort of astronomical ascent here. Uh, So we're going to discuss that. What are cryptocurrencies? Uh, Should you be paying attention? But uh, Jeremy, first off, we're, what, seven, eight days away from Christmas. Are you done with Christmas shopping yet? I haven't even started Christmas shopping. Uh, I think... Actually, I know a large chunk of our audience is in that same camp with me and have not. I haven't started. Yeah, I, like, they haven't touched the mouse. They haven't gone to Amazon yet. They haven't gone into a shopping mall. I hope no one goes into a shopping mall to do their Christmas shopping. It's awful. Like, they are absolutely crowded. I can't crowded. tell you the last time that I've been at a mall. I can't either. Like, I, I'm one of those weird millennials. Like, I'm unplugged. Like, I don't subscribe to cable. I don't do. I don't shop in physical stores anymore. Everything is <laughs> online. Yeah. So if it can't be delivered via Amazon Prime, you're not getting it pretty yeah, much. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I just, I'm just not going to do it. So... Um, haven't started my Christmas shopping, but one thing I am looking forward to, and that is after Christmas, all the Christmas music stops. You know, until I actually year. haven't been subjected to Christmas music. I get subjected to it every day in my office. That's like, brutal. Yeah. No, it's it's pretty awful. I, I, don't, I don't know if it's like a jail thing, but like it's it's uh, where, where I work. Yeah. Exactly. I was gonna say, yeah. Cl- <laughs> let me. I'm not in jail. I work at a jail. Um, and so, yeah, there's Christmas music being piped in my office. We're actually doing this from the Houston Harris County uh, jail, and Jeremy is <laughs> behind bars right now. So, yeah, some some stuff happened last night, and that's where I am. So, <laughs> um, anyways, yeah, so I, I I'm, I'm not the biggest fan of Christmas music, and it, it's only because it is probably the same 15 to 20 songs over and over again. Um, I hear more Mariah Carey. Only, yeah, there's. I hear more Mariah Carey in this like three week span than I ever do at any other time there of the year. are only like so many times that you can also hear Felice Navidad that's true Felice Navidad or um yeah just what like Whitney Houston Trans-Siberian yeah orchestra, Trans-Siberian all Orchestra all oh, are you a Mannheim steamroller guy or a Trans-Siberian Orchestra I'd probably say TSO yeah I think so I, I saw them at a little, uh, more, a little more rockish yeah I saw them last year their, their performance was actually really good I saw so. them I don't know probably back in high school or something like that I think my entire family went uh, saw them down in Houston. They were a lot of fun. I think we had really good seats. I think they were like second or third row, uh, stage left. So it was fun. Have I gone back? No. I, I'm always impressed by the light displays that somehow incorporate 
that a piece of music from one of those groups into their light display. I'm just like that 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 is so over my head. Well, and, and when I am a homeowner, I might put a little wreath see, on my door. Did you see in it. Houston this year? I think it was in Pearland. Uh, some Astros fan actually did a light display. Does commemorate i guess the astros winning the world series i can support that i could totally support that i thought that was pretty cool that's pretty cool now now here's here, here's the question did he um broadcast a radio signal with a song to synchronize his lights to because you can roll no, into... no no i think i think it was the uh the recap song that fox ran as the astros like, no way it. yeah oh that's awesome yeah yeah i, see, I can respect that i agree like a really well done themed christmas light display okay i can respect that i would never do it i would <laughs> never put money into that um, but go go for it, man. If that's you know your what thing. you need to do, you need to buy those like lasers off of Amazon that you just set outside in your front yard, plug in, and they light up your house. So that way, it, it looks like you've put in a lot of effort, but in reality, you just paid fifty bucks. So it's a, like slackerating or something. Like you're slack. It's capitalizing it's like, on technology. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. It shows yeah. you're ahead of the trend. Right. Okay. I don't well, know. That's that's what I'm telling myself. I, you, you know what? You know what's more obnoxious than Christmas decorations are the competitions that homeowners associations have for the quote unquote best Christmas decorations, and it, it like it brings out the worst in the neighborhood. <laughs> you know, as if homeowners associations could do any more. You know, could could be any more evil, right? So um, you know what I like about the show is you know sometimes we go all out and we script everything out right with with certain topics. Today I don't think we had Christmas you know discussion on this podcast, but I like it. I like talking, yeah, talking about all the all the weird things that people do around Christmas time. Like it's <laughs> it's it's one of those seasons. It's funny because in the mental health world where I live, uh, or where I work, <laughs> I like, sorry, where I live, I live in mental health world. Yeah, so so where I work, it's funny because if you're in private practice, you typically see more patients during Christmas time. Really? Yeah, because uh, you have difficult relatives coming into town. Uh, all the stress creates problems in relationships and, you know, buying gifts, affording gifts, running around, trying to get everything done. Uh, people are, 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 you know, freaked out. And, mo- you know, um, if, if, they, if they are in treatment with somebody, they typically will go see them a couple times during the holidays just to get through it. Interesting. Yeah. So. All right. So speaking of getting through the holidays, I don't know. Do you have sort of a holiday or Christmas moment that... Is interesting or a story that I don't know stands out to you I don't know embarrassing story any anything like that oh gosh I've got so well I say that I've got so many over the years um, Christmas story I, I can't say that anything's been really embarrassing I do know when I was a kid the one thing that I wanted more than anything was a power wheels fire truck and I ended up tell getting, me more I, yeah, I, I did no so this this thing was awesome you know if you had power wheels if you were a kid in the 90s like at some point you either had a neighbor that had a power wheels or you had a power wheels thing it was this little battery it, it went maybe like three miles an hour but to you that thing was a hot rod right yeah, and you had the tracks that you could build yeah yeah, yeah. so anyway so I got in this uh, I, I got in this thing and it had so I, I got this thing for Christmas one year and I literally thought Santa like in his like fat ass <laughs> had like made it down the chimney and dropped this thing under my tree and uh, I got in that thing and I think I, I rolled down my driveway and turned too quick and like ended up flipping it um, and I think I hurt myself a little bit but it was like <laughs> it was one of those things where it was like all of the joy and glee from getting a gift like that was like bam and I wrecked it but That's no funny. it still worked afterwards but this thing was awesome it had like a like a like a squirt gun on top like for you to fight really? fires. Oh yeah, it was amazing. Uh, I don't know if kids play with power wheels these days anymore. I think it's all iPad, iPhone, 
iPod, whatever. Interesting. Yeah. So I will, I will tell you a quick story. I don't know. Maybe I shared this last year, the year before, but uh, how I found out about Santa Claus. Did I, did I, have I told no, you No, you never told me. Okay. All right. So I was like five years old. And if, if you still believe in Santa Claus earmuffs right now, just go ahead and fast forward about 90 seconds. Uh, so we were in Las Vegas. My grandpa- great-grandparents lived out there. And uh, we had a family Christmas. I think this is like 1993, 1994. Uh, maybe it was 92. I don't know. It was early. So my grandmother... I guess left the video camera on after filming, you know, Christmas Eve decorations, dinner, that sort of thing. Anyways, uh, the next day we are watching the, uh, you know, sort of the recap of the day before. Maybe that's where I got this like trend of recap videos. Uh, but the video depicted my great grandmother in a Santa hat dropping Christmas gifts in our stockings. And I was stunned. I was like five, six years old. At this point, I was just watching. Everything is a lie. Yeah. Everything is a lie, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So I find out that Santa's not real at the age of five or six. Um, I think, you know, the spin on that was that my great grandmother was trying to say that um, somebody, this was like cousin Darren's stocking and he was bad this year. So he was, you know, she was just trying to make him feel good, that sort of thing. Whatever. I didn't buy it. So I knew at that age that Santa was not real, but I didn't tell my parents for another five, six years because I was afraid that if I told them, I wouldn't get gifts. You know, in 2017, you might say that Santa was transitioning. Okay. (laughs) So, um, shame on you, Austin, for not being more progressive. Fair. (laughs) Fair enough. When I was, no, when I found out Santa wasn't real, I had an existential crisis. I was seven years old and I just went up and asked my dad, I think it was like July or something. I don't know. I was thinking about Santa. It was like six months away from Christmas. Right. And I just, he, he told me, no, no, Santa's not real. Just like as a very matter of fact and like didn't like sugarcoat it. And I just, I had an absolute breakdown. <laughs> I don't even think I went to school the next day. It was terrible. That's funny. Well, uh, you know, it's, it's been sort of a interesting last week on Tuesday. Uh, Alabama made national headlines with their senatorial uh, special election. Of course, Doug Jones uh, was voted as the uh, the next senator, right? sort of the interim senator. His seat will be up for re-election in 2020, uh, defeating Roy Moore, who has been surrounded in controversy essentially the last two months. And since that time, and as we are recording, Roy Moore has not yet conceded the race. I mean, what's going on here, Jeremy? And for those listeners out there, uh, just sort of give us a synopsis of what happened in Alabama. Yeah, so Doug Jones beat Roy Moore by about 20,000 votes around that around that area and you know in a senatorial election that is a firm beating. I mean, I I don't care what state you're in. If it's about if it's between, you know, 5 and 10,000 votes, I can I can see you wanting a recall or 5,000 votes I can see a recall recall being called but even then there are a lot of contests that are decided by that much and they don't they don't uh recount the ballots. So, um and especially with, you know, ballots now being digitized, it's right. like there's no point. But um, Roy Moore is sort of deluded in his own fantasies of grandeur. He and, a horse. Yeah, he's, he's, he's exceedingly arrogant. And I think, I think this goes to show that, you know, bad candidates don't win elections. Right. right. We saw Even, that in 2016. Right. It, there, there, there is a limit to how much voters are willing to put up with. And I think that Moore 
never adequately explained himself. He never, he repeatedly, like he, he, he flip-flopped on the issue, you know, like he admitted to some contact with teenage girls when he was a 30 year old, something dude. And then he flipped on that and like, Oh, I've never, I've never done anything. I've never dated girls like that. And so he flip-flopped and, and I think that the good people of Alabama, I mean, I, I, I would have loved to see Mo Brooks, um, it, it, Mo Brooks or Luther Strange would have beat Doug Jones by 10 points. Easy. Either of those guys would yeah. have. But the fact that Roy Moore is, it was, was just, he, he attracted controversy and he just had a, he had a talent for putting his foot in his mouth and could never really articulate himself as well as literally. He's a very, very flawed. Character. Yeah. And I mean, whether you, you know, if you're a Roy Moore fan, I'm, I'm sorry for you. I, I think uh, Nick Saban might've had something to do with his loss. <laughs> Or at True least story. that's uh, Nick Saban uh, actually did get there was votes there was a summer. writing campaign for Nick Saban, you know, so um, shame on him. <laughs> but it's just like what what like our, our, our system has gotten that crazy where a college football coach is going to be written in. Um, he is the highest paid employee in the state of Alabama. Yeah. Making eleven million dollars a year. I know, which is crazy. We can talk about that in our amateurism <laughs> debate later. Um, but I, I think, you know. For for the record, the Republicans still have the majority in the Senate by one. Uh, it hangs by a thread. Now it just... Well, here's an interesting point, because uh, this week in the Senate, there's going to be a, a big vote on the tax issue, right? And it, it was announced that John McCain will not be there for this. It, it will probably require the uh, Mike Pence to break the vote if he can't. Yeah. I mean, if, if it ties... Um, or if it comes up in a tie, then it'll require Mike Prince to right. come down there and, and right. cast a tiebreaker. But yeah, John McCain's not doing too well, so I, I'm I'm actually kind of wondering what what his future is in the Senate and what uh, what the what that future seat in Arizona is going to look like heading into the future. But um, I think the Republicans have to pass something to give. They've got to give Trump a legislative win. They've got to look like they've done something because they really have not done anything. They failed on Obamacare repeal, which is why the base sent. I mean, th- this is why. The House, the Senate, and the presidency are all in Republican hands right now. It was for tax repeal, or it was for tax reform. It was for Obamacare repeal. It was to reverse a lot of the Obama era policies that have been implemented over his eight years, and they haven't they haven't delivered on anything. I mean, really. And um, I, I think net neutrality was was a big win, but that's not a legislative victory. That was. Let's a, talk about that real quick. Yeah. Net neutrality. Uh, if you're not familiar with it, uh, it was this this past week the F- S- the the FCC voted three to two to get rid of it. And uh, essentially, net neutrality was created two years ago, right? And it allowed, it, it basically said that ISPs cannot throttle down certain websites, that they have to treat every single web content the same. Is that, is that accurate? Um, that's part of the it. High, yeah. The high level. That's part of the it. A, a lot of, so there was, there was like a, for, for, from my point of view, there was this. This is not some sort of long-standing, decades-long policy ensuring a quote fair and free internet that the Trump administration just wiped away with one fell swoop. This was this was a policy implemented, as you said, two years ago, but two, two years ago by the Obama administration that was essentially a power grab. It gave the government authority to regulate the internet in a way that it never had before, and um, it. There are a lot of people that that mistakenly believe that this gives ISPs like like power to monopolize certain areas of the internet, which is just not true. If there is a monopoly, we have current laws to take care of that. But what it doesn't do is it doesn't give your ISP the power just to do whatever they want, so to speak. 
right? Because that, that's sort of the impression I'm getting is it gives ISPs all of this power that they didn't have previously, and that's just not true. If your ISP starts screwing you over on the price, the great you, you, you have options, right? If, well, if, if you don't like Comcast, you can go to, oh, go to AT&T. Yeah, if you don't like AT&T, you can go to Verizon. I, I agree with that in principle. And I'm, I'm all about competition, right? I think, I think that's good. That's what drives a capitalistic society, free market. In an ideal scenario, I, I, I agree with you. Um, but here's the deal. If an ISP like Comcast slows down your internet connection, generally there's going to be another option, right? That's not always going to be the case based on where you live. And, and secondly, if there is going to be another company to come out there and develop, the barrier to entry is so high because you know there there are all these behemoths like you know ATT Uverse, uh, Directv, uh, you know uh, Comcast. So in theory. I think getting rid of net neutrality is fine. I mean, I don't know why you have to treat you know data and in all. Well, it, what, the same, what it, it, it gave it gave a it gave a political it gave like an entitlement to people who were streaming large amounts of data that didn't want to pay for it. That's right. what it did, and that's a problem. You know, if you're an ISP and you have a guy that's that's you know downloading massive amounts of data and you don't have any any ability to throttle him you know rel- because th- there's only so much bandwidth on a line you know and if you have a guy that's taking up so much bandwidth and you can't charge him for that bandwidth that he's taking up then that kind of screws over everyone else on the line and i i, I mean people people get this they get this attitude like well if they use the service then somehow they're entitled to it right just because you're paying for something doesn't mean that you're that someone is obligated to give it to you and that's my main issue is that it didn't give private enterprises the ability to direct their own products you know direct and uh, dictate what the terms of service that they were going to provide were going to be. I just I had a huge problem with that. I don't now if if you know if there is a monopoly again, if there is some sort of like uh, you know corporate action that's in violation of current law, then the, we have laws to take care of that. Right. Net neutrality was not necessary. Is my point? No, it, I agree. it was I mean, this massive sweeping government overreach that I felt like gave government not only the power to access a lot of private data. But it just gave them the power to regulate. Why let the government access your private data when you just give it away for free to? <laughs> yeah, right Google. to Google, exactly. So, and, and here's the thing: I can't, you know. So let's say I have a problem with, you know, uh, you know, I, I, a problem with AT and I can sue AT and I can switch from AT and Right? I can do all these things. They're 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 a private enterprise. I can't sue the government. I can't, you know, you can com- well. Uh, it's exceedingly. I mean, you're you're, you're talking about a. You're talking about a, a, an entity with limitless resources to right. to battle you in court, uh, as opposed to they will defend the lawsuit yeah, and litigation. Yeah, exactly. Like dollars. I don't. I mean, my gosh, I, I the, the last thing you want is for government to get involved. Yeah. Eventually, the, the incentive to innovate and 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 provide new services and new innovation from these companies inevitably decreases the more government gets involved. Because if you get the if you get into the business of telling them what they can and cannot do, they're just not gonna. They're not. It, they're their incentive to provide new products goes down yeah it, it, it's going to be interesting to see just what the fallout is but I, I think it's funny just the, the meltdowns that we saw on social media uh when net neutrality was you know uh, repealed essentially so uh stay tuned for that of course there's going to be more updates on that uh tax bill is a huge issue this week as we get uh, ahead of the um as 
you know, we get ahead of the, uh, you know, the Christmas holiday here coming up next weekend. But uh, Jeremy, again, as mentioned at the top of the show, we've got some great interviews on deck. We're going to talk about cryptocurrencies as well as amateurism and college, as well as amateurism and college athletics. We're going to recap that at the end of the show. But if you want to follow our work, you can just search Weekly Brewcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. And you can also subscribe to our website at weeklybrewcast.com. Uh, but Jeremy, as promised, we've got a packed show on deck. So it's time to sit back, relax, and be informed. You're listening to The Weekly Brew. Joining us now on The Weekly Brew podcast is a, uh, a former boss of mine, and that's Chris Yandel, who spent more than a decade working in college athletics as uh, an administrator uh, at Baylor, uh, Miami, Georgia Tech, Marshall. Uh, Chris, I'm probably leaving off a few schools, but uh, you right now are one of the reasons why we wanted to bring you on is because uh, you are, you know, working to get your PhD right now. And you're kind of focusing a lot, especially on your Twitter account, on the amateurism that is going on uh, within the sport of college athletics and sort of the dynamic that it brings. And we're going to get into that here in just a few moments. But uh, first off, Chris, happy to have you on the show. How's it been? Austin, thank you, man. I, I'm uh, honored to be on. It's it's been a while. It's uh, kind of funny having the tables turn. My, <laughs> my former student intern is now interviewing me, but it's good. It's uh, it's definitely strange being outside uh, the college athletics world. It's uh, now I think uh, going into year number two um, as a recovery college athletics administrator, and I couldn't be happier. Yeah, it's it's totally different being on the outside and you know having that perspective of being on the inside and then uh, you know just looking at all of these I, I don't know coaching changes that have happened, all of these player transfer rules. It sort of gives you a new perspective, and that's one of the things that we wanted to bring you on and talk about. Uh, you know, we've talked about amateurism in college athletics, and you know, Hunter, Jeremy, myself, we're not huge fans that players aren't getting paid for essentially the work uh, that they're doing on the uh, on the field, and you know. For college football in particular, it, it's it's a money behemoth. You know, ESPN, Fox are getting millions and millions of dollars. Athletic departments getting millions and millions of dollars. But the players that make that game run are getting nothing except the cost of tuition and a scholarship. Is that fair? That's a good question. Um, no, it's not fair. And um, I think it's funny that the, the people that are saying uh, that cost of a cost of attendance and a free education is enough. Um, they don't know what goes on behind the scenes. And, um, you know, yeah, I worked in college athletics for, for over a decade. There were times I was still conflicted about what I was doing, uh, granted as a PR person, but seeing what I was seeing, um, to take a turn from Jay Billis, I saw how the sausage was made. And, you know, I don't think it's fair. And I, I mean, if a kid takes 12 to 15 hours a semester, um, and then on top of that, they're only allowed to have 20 hours of, of countable sports activities um, per week for their sport, and that's including travel and games. Uh, but let's be honest, a lot of sports are, go are going a hell of a lot over that 20-hour limit. Um, but, I mean, I remember going on media trips, uh, whether it was to Charlotte for ACC media days or, or uh, Kansas City for Big 12 media days with basketball, and, you know, the kids that we brought may not have had money in their pocket for per diem to eat. And, you know what, it may have been a violation. I bought them dinner or I bought them lunch because, I mean, that's the, that's the easy thing to do as a human being. But, I mean, seeing these kids, um, you know, it is tough. Seeing, you know, for instance, we were mentioning off air, 
you know, Jimbo Fisher down the road in College Station is getting paid $75 million in 10 years. I, I, I don't, to me, I, I can't fathom that. So he can leave uh, his Florida State players high and dry in the middle of the night and not tell them anything, go to College Station and become, you know, Emperor of Aggieland or whatever the hell you want to call him. <laughs> and, 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 I, and I threw that in there because you're a Baylor alum. I know you appreciate that. Of course. But then a, but then a kid at say TCU or Houston that wants to transfer has to sit out a year, but these coaches don't, they can one day pick up and leave and go somewhere else. And one of the other examples to bring up to your question is that a lot of people didn't discuss Willie Taggart has, was the head coach of three different schools in a 365 day span. He coached one day, um, at USF and then coached the next 363 days at Oregon before he was named Florida State head coach on the 365th day in a calendar year. He didn't have to sit out. Right. He's making a shit ton of money now. But if a kid transferred from USF to Oregon, he'd have to sit out uh, or he'd have to apply for a waiver whether it was a graduate um, exemption or, you know, being closer to home to family or, or something of that nature. But these kids are punished. And um, I, I think, and I'm sure we'll get into it later, a lot of the people that think that the, the transfer restriction shouldn't be lifted, they claim that it's going to be this mass exodus of, of um, free agency and chaos. And what a lot of these critics and pundits are forgetting, these are these are institutions of higher education. You don't just show up on the front door and get to go to class. You have to be admitted. You have to follow certain academic procedures for your credits from institution A to transfer to institution B. And then for those that are saying, well, kids could play at four schools in four years. There are safeguards in place because the NCAA has um, rules in place where you have to make uh, sufficient progress towards degree. And about a month or two ago, the NCAA punished a kid at Oakland University, and they claimed he's not making sufficient progress towards degree, yet he graduates this month a semester early. Wow. So there are rules in place. There are safeguards. And I think people are just getting caught up in the whole economic part of it and forgetting that schools like Baylor, TCU, uh, LSU, Ole Miss, Florida, wherever, Harvard, they're institutions of higher learning first. You have to get in, and if they're, as long as these kids are treated like the non-athlete students, there's not going to be this mass exodus, Austin, that all these people that are, are saying that. So, I, you know, there's just a lot of people that just say a lot of crap because um, they don't believe it's going to happen or they're afraid it's going to happen. But right now, um, I think we're just at the tip of the iceberg. I mean, we're just really starting this conversation even a year after um, the Obama case ended. I mean, this is just the start. You mentioned transfers, and I kind of want to get into that for a moment. So on Wednesday, it was announced that uh, – Baylor quarterback Zach Smith is going to be leaving the university and looking at his transfer options. And again, he's going to have to sit out a year. Uh, He enrolled in Baylor early, went through spring practice. So he's on track, you know, academically, but he's still going to have to sit out a year. And, And I remember when I first got to Baylor, there were sort of 
open transfer rules for, you know, the Olympic sports, you know, baseball, volleyball, people could transfer. And then the NCAA decided to change that policy and made all student athletes sit out a year. And, and I think that's the kicker. The NCAA calls it student athletes, but it's more of athlete. It, it, it's it's the student element is taking it's taken completely out of it. it, it it's a for profit business. You know, I, I don't care about the NCAA having this nonprofit tag, but I don't know. To me, that screams hypocrisy. Does it not? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, let's start with the student athlete term. You look at go look at it in the dictionary. It's not a word. It doesn't exist. It was coined by Walter Byers. Um, first of all, may he rest in peace. Um, the first executive director of the NCAA in the uh, early 1950s. I want to say it was maybe 51 or 52. Anyway. He coined the term because there were a couple of um, workers' compensation claims being brought against the NCAA. Um, there was uh, two players, uh, Nemeth versus University of Denver. I want to say that court case might have been 52 or 53. Um, a player that got injured, um, and he actually he may have died, and the widow was, was seeking worker comp, workers' uh, comp claims. Um, and then another one um, at a college in um, Colorado. And they both were denied um, because the NCAA created this falsehood of a, quote, student athlete um, to avoid that because in those workers' comp claims, they were positioning the athletes as employees. Well, the NCAA and Walter Byers said, no, they're not. They're student athletes. They're students, and then they, they play it's their choice to play afterwards um, because they're, they're, they're positioning it as playing college athletics is a decision made by the student. It's not a, a job per se, but if you look at it, the progression of it, it is. I mean, hell, the beginning of the 20th century, um, the government, the U.S. government and the president, Teddy Roosevelt, got into it and the NCAA was created in the White House in order to save college football because it was too deadly. Now let's fast forward 115 years. What's the same issue in college sports? College football. Right. So, I mean, really nothing has changed except the year and, and the technology. And, you know, it's just it's mind-boggling, and it is a hypocrisy. The amount of money the NCAA can generate with their championships, um, their corporate sponsorships, hell. I mean, how many times are, do you watch, um, take the NCAA tournament, for instance. I, I love watching March Madness. It's going to sound hypocritical, especially once my dissertation and research is done. <laughs> but w when you watch a game, often think about how many commercials there are during the game, uh, about the official sponsor of NCAA Sports, blah, 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 blah. All the, the sponsorship and courtside uh, signage. And then, I mean, all, all this crap in venue that, you know, the media can't bring, uh, can only bring certain cups marked with Powerade or NCAA to be on press row. They can't, you know, bring a Dasani water bottle. It has to be poured inside a blue cup that either says Powerade or NCAA on it. So NCAA is in their nonprofit, you know, by by tax terms, but they they make a 
crap load of money. And the people that work in Indianapolis, while many of them, I'm sure, are fine individuals, they make a ton of money more than they probably should. And it, again, it goes back to, to what you said about, you know, the transfers and, and everything. It, it, it's not fair. I mean, I transferred schools um, after my sophomore year of college from Southern Miss to Louisiana Lafayette. And I met with an academic counselor to figure out which credits could transfer and what did I need to do. And it set my, my next two and a half years in, in order to graduate. Um, I didn't have to sit out my chemistry 101 class my first semester of my junior year. You probably would have or liked that though, right? <laughs> I would have because I hate chemistry and I really hate sciences. Um, but I, I still had to go to class like everybody else. And I... I was working in the athletic department at the time to a student assistant. So just the, the rules that are held for non-athletes compared to the rules held for athletes is bogus. It, it's not fair. It, they're only there for a competitive advantage because the schools and the coaches, they, they see those kids as, and I'll say this term a lot, as property. They see them as a value on the field. They don't want uh, another team to get a competitive advantage. They don't give two craps if Timmy doesn't, uh, if Timmy's in math uh, 099 because he can't add two and seven together. So it, it, everything is done from an NCAA perspective. It's not done to, to protect amateurism. We're the only country in the world that uses this existence of amateurism as it applies to college athletics only place in the world canada even allows you to be a professional athlete pay some money back sit out a year boom you can play college athletics to me i think that's fascinating because we look at for example soccer uh, the world cup the united states is not making the world cup in 2018 and, and there was a lot of speculation that it be, it's because of the way that uh, the U.S. develops its athletes at a young age. And we look to a lot of the countries that have success, you know, especially in Europe, they have academies dedicated specifically to training. And those clubs, you know, pay for their training. They they, they pay for their time. And then you, you see guys like, uh, you know, uh, what is it, Christian Pulisic, one of the uh, the 19-year-old phenom striker for the U.S. national team, you know, he, he was because he had dual citizenship, he was able to go to one of these academies in Europe. And now he's, you know, a star on the Dortmund team. Is that sort of the model that the United States should adopt? You know, these specialized schools, if these athletes want to go professional or it, it, does the NCAA just need to have some sort of reform in order to give these student athletes some sort of standard of living? That That's a good question. I think... Um... You know, because of how higher education is, it has developed in, in the United States, I don't know if we could do what some of these foreign countries can do with um, these specialized academies. It, it's a good idea in theory. I, I'm not sure if our um, education system can hold that. Uh, one of the things that I propose or I hope to propose in my research is that, okay, the the, the only thing that Mark Emmert has ever said that is accurate and remotely intelligent <laughs> is um, saying that kids being forced to go to college in order to go to professional is wrong. That's the only intelligent thing the man said. And he's right. The, 
you shouldn't be forced to go to college if you want to go to professional. Um, because let's face it, a lot of these kids may not be prepared academically to go to college. They're not being prepared in high school or junior high or middle school. So it's not just, you know, a high school issue. It's, you know, it's also goes back to a socioeconomic issue, which can be a whole nother podcast later on. But I think in order for this to work and these kids not to be forced into something that they don't want to do because look at Kentucky, how many one and done. Right. They're going there because Calipari is using the system to his advantage. He knows those kids aren't getting an education. And Calipari's a smart dude to do the way he's doing it. He gets the kids the year they need between high school and the NBA and then ships them off and they become number one draft picks and millionaires. Um, I think in order for this to work, you're going to have to offer um, athletes an avenue to be paid and represent a college. And what I mean by that is um, you have you have two choices. You can be uh, a non-athlete and go to school full-time, do your 12, 15, 18 hours as a student. Or if you sign a, quote, contract with a college and um, you play for that school, for that sport, you wear the team's gear, you're a representative of them. Um, it's kind of like a semi-pro, I guess, Meyerly contract, so to speak. And you have the option if you want to take go to go take a class. You can take no more than six hours um, during the competition season if you so choose. You're not required to, but you would get set amount of money. You get X amount of gear, meals, you know, whatever, apartment you know, the finer things in life. Um, and you get to play ball, and that's all you have to focus on is playing ball. That's your job. Um, but you also, the school would have an option to offer, hey, if you want to, we support you in doing this. You can go and, you know, take up to six hours of class, and the GPA, your your grades will have no bearing on your eligibility. Because um, I think that's where a lot of the issues lie is, you know, they dip their nose in, into eligibility. Um, the schools should be the purveyors of that. Um, the the academic standards of Harvard University aren't the same as the Harvard on the Bayou, Nickel State University, right <laughs> down the street from my house. It, they're not the same, and the NCAA treats them the same. It, you, you can't. That's, that's apples to avocados. It's not even – a fair comparison. Every school has different academic standards, different admission standards, different curricula. Um, so I think that the eligibility part of the equation has to be taken out. Uh, let the schools police that. Um, and for those people that say, well, the schools are going to cheat. Okay. Well, if they do, we have accreditation committees and accreditation boards that can take care of that. Right. But I also pause and say that, also didn't take care of the University of North Carolina and their widespread academic cheating. Um, so, I mean, that, that is one black eye on, on the accreditation boards. But I think you have to allow these schools to police themselves in terms of eligibility, transfers. Um, you know, if you, if you have a 3.5 GPA, Austin, and you're the star quarterback at Baylor and you want to transfer to another school, great. You clearly are halfway intelligent 
you should be allowed to play right away. You're not an at-risk student academically. Um, now, I do believe if you don't have a GP, if they're going to continue this process and not, you know, take my suggestion and my research, um, then there should be a cutoff GPA. If your cumulative is, you know, below a 2.3, yeah, you need to sit out and have a year in residence academically to get your shit together. Um, but if you're a good academic standing and have been on the dean's list or president's list or um, a semester ahead of everybody else in your grade, you shouldn't be punished for that. You should be allowed to play right away. I agree. But I think these restrictions are, are complete BS, but it goes back to coaches wanting to control their property um, and not allow for competitive advantages with within or without their conference. I think that's a really powerful term, coaches controlling their property. Uh, it, it just, I don't know, it, it, it rings true, uh, especially in the sport of college football, college basketball. Uh, it's 100% accurate. But uh, I do want to ask you uh, kind of your comment on a statement that was made by NCAA President Mark Emmert last week. And we also asked Lee Jenkins this, but in sort of a different paradox. We, we asked him whether the statement was applicable to the one-and-done role in the NBA. But just for our listeners that might not have heard the quote, Mark Emmert uh, was speaking on LeVar Ball and said, is this a part of someone being part of your university as a student athlete, or is it about using college athletics to prepare yourself to be a pro? If it's the latter, you shouldn't be there in the first place. I'm curious your reaction. First of all, I think both of, I don't think very highly of either one of them. <laughs> um, but going back to my previous comment earlier the only thing mark emmert has ever said that is remotely accurate or intelligent is that kids should not be forced um to go to school in order to become a professional athlete that that shouldn't be the pipeline it, it, it shouldn't be it you shouldn't force a kid that doesn't want to go to college um you know and th- there's a lot of and the the other issue is recruiting and high school sports and has become so now popular and it's widespread i mean these kids read their own media clippings and their news clippings and like oh bro i'll play one one year in the league and i'm gonna go pro uh it's just it it's a it's a flawed view um and as far as uh the carnival barker um lavar ball is concerned um <laughs> he he's bad he's bad for for sports in general dude's only out for himself um, I mean, his kids just signed a contract to play in Lithuania in some like D league for pennies for for an organization where the owner is like a month behind in paying kids. So, I think to pull your kid out of high school and to pull your kid out of college uh, because you didn't like something being done, I think is a very selfish move. Um, do I think any of his kids are talented? They might be. I mean, I don't know. Um, but unfortunately for those kids, they'll never be able to be their, their own person because of their dad. Um, but but I do agree with Emmer. That's going to be the only time I ever say it. These kids should not be forced to go to college for a year um, or go play overseas for a year in order to go play in the NBA. Um, I think the NBA's uh, one-year rule was um, dumb. It it was very short-sighted. I don't think kids – if you're 18 
and in high school, and you could dunk a basketball, and NBA scouts think you're good, then you should be able to play in the NBA. I mean, you can vote at 18. You can buy cigarettes at 18. You can go fight overseas in a war at 18. Why the hell can't you play in the National Basketball Association? I hell, agree. You can, play, you can play Major League Baseball. I mean, Bryce Harper wasn't much older than 18 when he broke into the majors. You could be an 18-year-old phenom playing in the NHL. I mean, the only sport you can't play at 18 is in the NFL just because physically you're not ready. But every other sport, Freddie Adu was 15 when he played in the MLS. So I just think this argument is, is a waste. And, you know, I think times are changing. And with the amount of money that is involved in television contracts, how much money fans pay to go to games, which is just absolutely mind-boggling. There's so much money involved economically. You know, these kids shouldn't be getting screwed. And by forcing them to go to school when they don't want to go there, you're screwing them at both ends. One, you're delaying them from achieving their goal financially. And then, B, you're going to say, ah, nope, you're a student athlete in college, man. Here's a free education, and we use free loosely. And eh, you'll get per diem and a couple of thousand dollars and some free gear, but you can't get paid, bro. Uh, you're you're screwing these kids, and, and I, I just don't, I just don't, I don't, I don't agree with it. And I, I kind of want to talk about that for a minute because, you know, when we look at the Ball family, LaMelo Ball, who is the youngest son, he is sort of endorsing big baller brands. So he was going to have questions with his NCAA eligibility. Uh, we go back to the early 1990s, 2000s. I can't remember when, but Jeremy Bloom, who won a gold medal in uh, the Olympics, the Winter Olympics as a skier, was also a football player at Colorado. He was told that he couldn't take endorsement deals after winning gold, which, yeah, that's that's a really big deal. He was told that he had to choose, take the endorsements or play college football. And then, you know, even recently, we see, uh, you know, student athletes like Donald De La Haye from Central Florida, who was a kicker, who had a very popular YouTube channel that uh, the NCAA told him that he couldn't run because he was making money off of it. I mean, if a student athlete wanted to go get a job at McDonald's, they could do it. Why can't they capitalize on what they do best? Like, if if, if LaMelo Ball has a really good shoe, why can't he promote that? If if Jeremy Bloom is an Olympic athlete, why can't he promote that? If, if De La Haye is a great YouTube star, why can't he continue that? Well, uh, to put it bluntly, and I'm sure I'll get a lot of uh, critiques from this, so bring it on. People can tweet at me later when this episode drops. Um, honestly, I think it's because the NCAA, you're taking money from us. So we're not going to let you compensate because, you know, you're a student athlete, you're an amateur. It, it, it goes back to that false ideology of amateurism in America, um, with college athletics. Um, it, it's stupid. And if, if the kid, you know, in high school has built this great positive brand online, and he's able to monetize his YouTube channel, don't punish the kid for being smart in high school and getting ahead and seeing, yeah, you know, my name, image, and likeness has value. So I want to profit off of that. Entrepreneurs do it all the time. Shit, turn on anything on the Internet. Right. Everyone's trying to make money. Instagram. It, it goes back to the Kardashian, uh, Kardashianization of America. You, you do something famous or stupid, and you can make billions of dollars overnight. And I think it's unfair that if these kids are smart enough in high school to realize, hey, there's a business opportunity here, 
you can't punishing them for that is dumb. I, I, the, if the kid can make money, you know, legally, and not you know selling stuff on the streets or stealing other people's property, let him do it. I mean, he he'll pay taxes on it. There, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, I just think that it's awful that he had to choose between you know a business of his versus playing college football. I, I don't think that's fair. Um, at the University of Miami, we had two players, uh, Ray Ray Lewis the third, son of you know Hall of Famer Ray Lewis. Um, he was a model in in high school, and he had to sign some paperwork when he got to the University of Miami so he could continue doing that in college and you know his his face and image um and and likeness were used for special advertising but he couldn't say that he was a college athlete or played at the university of miami um but he can use his name um and then we had another player chad thomas um who was the, the starting defensive end big he's a senior this year for the hurricanes um he produces rap songs i mean there was a huge rapper this year, I forget who, um, that he helped produce his album. And because he disclosed that when before he signed his, his NLI, um, he filled out some paperwork and he was able to preserve that and preserve his, quote, amateur status. So I think a lot of it, I think there's some, some underlying issues as to why the NCAA chooses what battles it chooses. Um, I think one, um, and this doesn't get a lot of play, is how is the school or schools and their compliance staff, what are they doing in their paperwork or how are they positioning it um, in order to allow these kids to, to keep their stuff? Um, and two, how much information are these kids disclosing beforehand? And, uh, you know, a lot of these kids, you know, that are in high school that are, you know, five-star athletes or, you know, All-Americans or whatever, go look at their Twitter and Instagram and YouTube accounts. I mean, they have more followers and likes than, you know, half half of uh, the teams in Division One athletics. Right. So, I mean, these, these kids have a huge following and a, and a huge brand. And to tell them, like, no, you, you, can't, you can't take advantage of that, man, when they get to college, whereas – a kid in their English class who's not an athlete who has 80,000, you know, YouTube subscribers is, you know, making five grand a month monetizing his channel. How is that fair? Right. It's just, it, it's dumb. And, and I can't help but think that they're doing it because it, it's ultimately taking away potential monies from the NCAA as a whole. And they're probably going to deny that and, and what have you, but, that's how I feel. That that's what I think because that's the only thing I can think of, um, and that they want to keep um, uh, the free market value of these athletes to a minimum. Because if they allow them to monetize themselves, that's going to drive up the the free market price tag on some of these kids, and then they're afraid they're going to get into a bidding war with other schools. and And I just think that I just think that thought process is asinine. Yeah, it's 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 a very interesting topic, and you know, as you mentioned, I think we're going to be more aware of you know different issues, 
here in you know the next several years, especially as it seems like there is more of a, a desire and in, in search for knowledge and information on these types of subjects. But again, we have Chris Yandel. Uh, you can follow him on Twitter at Chris Yandel, joining us on the Weekly Brew podcast. And uh, you, Chris, as mentioned before, you spent more than a decade in college sports. You're currently uh, a PhD student at Mercer. Uh, you know, kind of doing research on amateurism and college athletics, and sort of, uh, you know, what a p- possible solution could be. And I, I don't know if you can go too much into your research right now but if you can can you kind of provide our listeners with a little peek behind the curtain on you know kind of what your research uh is is about and what you hope to find sure so i mean there there's a i have a lot of irons in the fire but um one the one paper that uh we had to write for our um, higher education legal issues course uh last spring we got to choose a topic and and as you can probably tell, I chose amateurism and, and college athletics. And really, the, the premise of my, the beginning parts of my research and where this paper is gone is going back in time, so to speak, and trying to figure out how did this ideology of amateurism start? What, what events led up to why we view amateurism so highly in in college athletics in, in the United States and what legal um, court cases have, have come along the way. And it's been interesting to, you know, to realize some of these things. I knew um, working in sports, I knew that the NCAA was created because of um, health concerns with college football because kids were dying. I mean, it was a pretty gruesome sport at the turn of the 20th century. And, and President Roosevelt wanted to save it, and, and his idea was to invite leaders from these various schools um, to, to D.C. To, to determine what to do, and then ultimately it was, it was created in 1906. Um, and just seeing how at the beginning of the 20th century, you know, the, the Ivy League schools before they, they changed how they did things, what college sports, meant to them in terms of money generation and alumni support and just the newspaper clippings and the quotes I have found between like 1888 and let's say 1920, just the amount of presidents um, discussing uh, what it means, how important it is to have a, a winning football team in terms of alumni support and donations and how it was more important than, than academics and Nobel Prize uh, winners, which it's like, holy crap, you know, you close your eyes and, and you think it's 2017 and just some of the other events that have happened along the way. And, you know, the, the Carnegie report in, in 1929, you know, this is 80, I got to do the math, 88 years ago, they said college sports is commercialism. I mean, it's the highest form of, com- it's a commercial engine. It's not about amateurism. This is in 1929, and, and nothing, unfortunately, has, has really changed since. And just seeing the progression of, of the laws and the rules that have come into play and how the introduction of the student-athlete term came to be to protect um, amateurism and, and workers' comp claims. And then uh, one of the things I have found interesting that I've kind of put on the, on the back burner while I work on this current paper, but it's going to be in my research is how the NCAA um, implemented academic restrictions in order 
to not only take advantage of the athletes, uh, the black athletes now being allowed to integrate into major college sports, but how it's also it's punishing kids. So, for instance, um, some of these uh, prop, I think it's Prop 48, um, I can't remember off the top of my head. I've read, Austin, I've read so much crap the last seven <laughs> semesters, I, I, I can hardly remember it. But there were some propositions passed in the 60s and 70s for, for academic reform. Um, you know, really that was to allow underperforming, academically underperforming black athletes into the schools to play football and basketball because schools are no longer segregated. But then that's taking away scholarships and positions from African-American students that have the grades. So, I mean, it's just instances like that and seeing it over time and, and how um, the integration of college athletics, that was the beginning of the demise of, of the dominance of HBCUs. I mean, back in the 50s and 60s, I mean, schools like Grambling here in Louisiana, Southern uh, Prairie View A and M, um, Jackson State, you know all these historically black colleges and universities, they were dominant in college football and in other sports. But once schools started integrating, all those hotshot black athletes were going to Alabama's and all these schools that said they would never play a black athlete, and the NCAA ultimately, you know, when they allowed segregate um integration i mean they helped kill hbcus and i think they've helped kill them with these um restrictive academic standards or these propositions and such um which is a shame because um you know higher education we're, we're supposed to be educating our future and and i think the NCAA doesn't care about education they don't care about um the student and student athlete they care about the athlete and the student athlete um but, you know, it, every time I, I sit down and, and want to type something, I'm ready to type another five pages because it's a never-ending <laughs> battle. And, and it's exciting, and, and I hope my research is still timely and, and worthwhile, you know, when it's done. But it's, it's – um, and, you know, I've uncovered some, some really interesting things that wasn't on my radar. Like I have another paper for about um, academic advisors in college athletics and – you know, something I found out, you know, females outnumber males in, in academic offices and athletics almost two to one. Wow. And my sub-question is, why is that? Is it being used as a recruiting tool? Um, so it's just some of these things that, that I'm uncovering now that I'm, I'm out of athletics. I saw it when I worked in it, but I didn't quite believe it. Um, I'm falling deep into a rabbit hole, but... You know, thankfully, we have people like um, Jay Billis, um, Andy Schwartz, who's a economist out of Stanford, um, who is fighting for, you know, athletes to be paid because he knows that college athletics is not going to go away if, if athletes get paid. They're, they're just not. The fan, all the fans care about is they don't want people messing with their games. Right. They keep my games on television. Just let me keep buying tickets and gear. I really don't care. And that's all they care about. They don't care if the kids are getting paid. Um, but they don't they don't complain with how much money their coaches are getting paid. So, um, 
it's we're definitely entering a new frontier. And, um, you know, I thought O'Ban- the O'Bannon case was going to be the one um, that finally knocked the door down. Um, but there's two cases right now um, that the NCAA is battling that, you know, could help the whole name image likeness battle and, and trying to get true compensation for these, these athletes. Cause I, I think they deserve it. You know, yes, they signed up to play college sports, but you know, they should be allowed to profit because the schools are profiting. The coaches are profiting. Fans are profiting. Why can't the entertainment product itself profit from it? Right. And you know, the whole, there's the whole other issue of gambling as well that, you know, would be, uh, you know, another podcast in itself. But, uh, Chris, it's been absolutely fascinating having you on the podcast and, uh, I, I'm really looking forward to, seeing your research when it's published and, and, and just continuing to follow your work because I, I think reforms are coming in college athletics. I think they have to come. And uh, I think you are part of the catalyst that is going to help change that. So really uh, appreciative for having you on. And uh, I cannot wait to uh, you know see what your research uh, findings are. And, and, and for our listeners out there that you know might want to reach out to you, uh, you know, via email or Twitter or social media, just kind of learn more of, you know, kind of about you and what you're doing. Uh, what is the best way for them to get in touch with you? Sure. Yeah. Um, they, they can, uh, they can reach me on Twitter. Um, at Chris Yandel, C-H-R-I-S-Y-A-N-D-L-E. You know, during the day, I am a K-12 education tweeter, but I do manage to to get in some research stuff during the day in my off time. Um, You can always email me, too, at yandel.chris at gmail.com. I'm always uh, happy to respond and chat offline and and whatnot. Uh, hopefully, uh, fingers crossed, I've submitted an abstract for this paper uh, to a conference in, for April 2019, uh, not 2019, 2018 in the spring. So fingers crossed, uh, hopefully by February, I'll hear whether or not I get accepted to, to present um, and hopefully finish that paper. So I'm hoping uh, that'll be the first major step. And um, I have a second paper dealing with uh, job satisfaction, academic advisors, um, and athletics that uh, my education leadership professor thinks could be uh, really groundbreaking, hopefully, too. But um, those are the two easiest ways to get me. I usually respond fairly quickly. Um, Like I said, I'm happy to chat. And uh, I'm always open to, to great conversation and and I'm actually waiting for people to disagree with me because that's what I enjoy them. That's what I enjoy the most. I like the discourse. I like when people disagree and bring a, a different point of view because that's the only way I'll, I'll learn new things. And then maybe their different point of view can can help shape the future. Well, we could bring Jeremy on and talk politics, and I think you might have some disagreements. But, uh, but, but Chris, it's definitely <laughs> Chris, it's definitely been a blast having you on the podcast, and uh, we appreciate it, man. Awesome. It was good catching up, Austin, and uh, hopefully uh, people will enjoy it. You're listening to The Weekly Brew. Over the past two weeks, we've seen a major run and craze on cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Litecoin. But what does it all mean, and should you be involved in the trend? And to discuss these things and more, we're joined now by Thomas Manning, CEO of Crypto Bay Holdings. And uh, first off, Thomas, uh, thanks for joining the show this week. We really appreciate it. And uh, for those that aren't familiar with, you know, uh, cryptocurrencies, can you explain it to us in the simplest form what it is? Well, first off, thanks for having me, Austin. Uh, I really appreciate you having me on your uh, your uh, panel here today. Um, 
First things first, Bitcoin is really the godfather of it all. Uh, it's the originator of the, the cryptocurrency and, and the blockchain that I'm sure you've heard of. And basically, in, in a nutshell, uh, Bitcoin is, is kind of what PayPal was initially trying to do. Um, they created a peer-to-peer -peer system where you could essentially avoid uh, the centralization of, of the world and avoid banks and having to use them to move money around or... or Avoid Wall Street when when trying to get investment opportunities for startups. So Satoshi Nakamoto was the creator of this, and in all reality, we don't know who he is or if he's just a single entity because it's 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 really a pseudonym pseudonym name. Um, we're not sure if he's one person. We don't know his identity and whatnot. He could have been just doing that using a pseudonym to avoid fame. But anyway, long story short. Bitcoin was the creator of it all, and it was it was created for a purpose of allowing people to have a peer-to-peer -peer means to transfer money and wealth with without having government's hands in it and without having banks' hands in it, and really just making the the process more efficient and you know cheaper. <laughs> uh, you don't have to have the fees associated with wire transfers and, and whatnot. Uh, of course, there are fees associated with moving Bitcoin and selling Bitcoin right now, but they are getting smaller and smaller with each upgrade of, of their technology. To me, I think that's fascinating. Uh, you know, are, are these cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Litecoin, are, are those bent to replace, you know, currencies like cash currencies like the u.s dollar the pound or, or the euro or, or is it completely separate it depends on who you ask there the, the, they definitely are trying to enter that space and and i don't i i personally think it's very possible that in the future we no longer have paperback money and this is going to be you know the means of of a store of value um just, i mean we started off in this world, you know, using the bartering system. And then we, you know, all created a, a, a viable uh, product or a, a viable commodity that we put, you know, value in and, and gold. And then we created gold, the gold standard with paperback where all your paper money was backed by gold. And, and now the U.S. dollar isn't backed by anything. It's backed by consumer confidence. There is no gold that for every note, you know. Uh, there's no amount of gold in Fort Knox for all the trillions of dollars in, in circulation. So with the digital world just growing and growing and growing so rapidly, I, I personally think that this will replace the fiat money in the long term. Now, in my lifetime, I don't necessarily think it'll completely replace it. Uh, it could. I don't know. Who knows? But um, that's a little extreme, I would I would say, because small businesses do like the you know the tangible the the dollar, and there's lots of benefits to that. But it, it definitely will make a mark in uh, in the currency world, um, especially the 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 staples like like Bitcoin, like Litecoin, like Dash. Um, those are those are the the three kind of game changers um, where where they're they're infiltrating the 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 world of, of currency. Yeah, we we've sort of seen that as well in, in in you know the Asian markets. You know, you go to Japan, you can actually pay with Bitcoin in a lot of stores and to me that's just fascinating. Right. Yeah, uh, you you can literally live and and breathe and function completely with with Bitcoin and Litecoin over in Japan and and not have to have any kind of 
uh, yen or U.S. dollar or credit card for that matter. Uh, there, there's a a cryptocurrency called Pay Token that is creating or has created. Uh, it's not available in the states yet, but they have created credit cards where you can pay for goods and services with your cryptocurrency that you have affiliated with this, you know, credit card account. Wow. So it's it's uh, it's it's happening happening real fast and, and honestly the US is behind the, the you know behind the times on it with it all we're we're we are lagging in the grand scheme of things compared to other other first world you know countries and and, and game changers like you know, like Japan like China like Switzerland um, and like South Korea yeah, I guess it makes sense the US is so far behind in STEM education, so it would make sense that they're so far behind in uh, cryptocurrencies. But, you know, it, it, Thomas, in, in the past week alone, we've seen Bitcoin surge, you know, over 16%. Litecoin, uh, you know, depending on when we're actually recording this, uh, it, it's up over 200% in the last week. You know, what is going on in the last week or two that has made these cryptocurrencies go from, you know, uh, sort of a small segment where, you know, some people knew about it to now it's, you know, mainstream news? Well, the big the big influence to the, to the growth the past month has been the the futures contracts that are now available. Uh, they can, there are two companies, investment companies that have uh, recently started. Well, one that already already offered them this starting this Sunday, and one that's starting to offer futures contracts on the 18th, I believe. And basically, what that means is you can bet on Bitcoin to go up or down in value without actually own owning the cryptocurrency um, and owning Bitcoin. So you're, you're just placing an investment on the fact that you think Bitcoin or Litecoin is going to go down. And that, that was, that was a game changer. Uh, For one, a lot of, a lot of big money whales have, have kind of, kind of, use their platform to manipulate the system in a way that's, you know, would, would use like scare tactics basically to try and keep uh, Bitcoin down because they kind of think it will take over and hurt their business uh, and, and interfere with some of, you know, their revenue. So a, a lot of the big players, especially like banks like uh, JP Morgan and, and, and Jamie Dimon, the CEO of, of that company, have, have used their platform just to, to kind of, keep it contained and try and smother it to some extent because in my opinion they're they're they they fear it at the same time we've seen hedge funds you know sort of develop that have been trading with with cryptocurrencies you know or, or is that the way of the future and, and should people start following and, and monitoring and caring about this when they're looking to you know invest in their financial future i, I definitely think it's uh it's going to be a game changer i've, I've personally have been dabbling in in the 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 day trading aspect of things and it's a it's a whole nother animal for sure um there's no doubt about it that hedge funds are are coming into play here and you're you're seeing a lot more educated moves being made and people with lots of money from wall street that are moving over that are willing to take that chance now now that it is available and and has moved into wall street to to a small extent Um, they're, they're working on creating etfs which are basically just leverage stocks. Um, like you can bet on gold to go up, and if it goes up a dollar per ounce, well, if you have a, an ETF that's leveraged by two or three X, every dollar you'll make two dollars or three dollars, and that's that's just kind of the 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 nuts and bolts of it. 
and those are those were uh, shut or, or turned turned away uh, from from the SEC. They were they were trying to get that done earlier this year, and, and the SEC said no. They didn't want that volatility penetrating their market, but. It might it might come back into the fold and, and might be uh, possible here in the in the coming new year, and yeah, it, it there I really think that the skies are the limits with all this because it's all about supply and demand and the demand is growing and the supply is relatively speaking staying the same. Uh, it's very very minutely increasing um, every ten minutes on average by a very small amount um, and and will be. Uh, ex, you know, reaching its ca- full capacity. I'm not entirely sure. I think it's around like 2020 or something like that is when all the bitcoins will be in circulation. But it is capped at 21 million total. So at, at that point, it will literally be increasing demand and a stagnant supply. And so just to clarify for our listeners, uh, Thomas is referring to what they call as mining. So that means that you can go and mine Bitcoin, Litecoin, uh, but there is a finite supply. So once that's capped, uh, it's not like the U.S. dollar where the, uh, you know, you know, the government can go and print more money. It's it's something a little bit different. But, uh, you know, Thomas, uh, you know, we've seen these skyrocketed prices here in the, uh, you know, the past week or two uh, with these cryptocurrencies. And I've seen a lot of journalists who have come out there and say that this is just another bubble. This is similar to the dot-com era back in the early 2000s, which led to a, uh, you know, sort of a recession. Is, is you know, is cryptocurrency a bubble or do you think it's, you know, kind of short-sighted for some of these pundits to make these claims? I, I personally don't think it's a bubble. Could it be? Uh, there's no doubt about it. Um, that, uh, if If it just... Can, uh, continues to expand at the rate it has the past month. Like it's 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 kind of scary to some extent. Now everybody will look at the charts and, and see a, a, a parabolic chart that's just going literally off the charts. It just keeps going up and almost straight up, relatively speaking, to you know what it has been in prior months. But that's just because more money is becoming put into the space and the market cap, uh, the total the total amount of money that has been put into cryptocurrencies worldwide has gone from 200 billion before Thanksgiving to 500 billion yesterday for the first time. Uh, so that alone, just 150% increase in, in market capitalization in a month is insane. So is it risky? Could, could the bottom fall out to some extent, uh, especially with a lot of these, these coins? Yeah, there's no doubt about it. It could happen. I I'm a, a believer that it, that it won't happen. Now, for for the for the the space as a whole. Now, will there be corrections? Yes. I mean, there's volatility like crazy out of this. It's really unprecedented. But and, and there's a you know more often more often than not these cryptocurrencies are going to fail because the vast majority of them are startup companies and some of them don't even have a product or a service yet that is, you know, producing capital so and revenue. So, yeah, a, a lot of them are specul- super speculative and will fail and will be, you know, basically worthless. Um, but a lot of them won't be. And, and if you, you do your due diligence, uh, and at least in my opinion, a lot of them won't be. And, and if you do your due diligence and 
put your money in the right spot, I think long term, I mean, the sky's the limit. So essentially, you have to be uh, invested, you know, uh, when it comes to this, you have to do your research, you have to have knowledge. Uh, You can't just go into it blind, because it's the cool thing to do. I mean, this is real money, this has real world implications. Uh, Just like any other investment, if you're making these investments, you have to be prepared to, uh, you know, to ride these, uh, this, these swings, it is a volatile market. Uh, In Thomas, I think one of the most fascinating things you know about these cryptos especially bitcoin and litecoin is the uh, the technology behind it the blockchain and, and for those you know that aren't familiar blockchain technology it's growing we've seen a lot of companies begin to adopt this uh, in different industries and, and thomas for those that aren't familiar with what blockchain technology is can you kind of explain that and, and why it's important for the cryptocurrencies okay so blockchain technology in in a nutshell is as a way of using big data that is really efficient. It's, it's a data system that creates a historical ledger that has the ability to keep every transaction for a, a, you know, a particular unit in, in stored into their integrity and, and in a trustless environment where you don't need a governing authority or a company that has their own interests. It's completely trustless. So there, there is no trust needed in, in any entity, uh, company or, or people because the system allows it to be completely incapable of being manipulated uh, with, with the miners who are basically fact checking everything and verifying everything. And, and with like Litecoin, you have to get, verified every block gets verified six times before any money is sent before a litecoin is transferred or moved so the blockchain technology is without a doubt not going anywhere um it it will be a huge part of of the growth and in, in the technology and, and the just the companies as a as a whole uh it, it allows for a whole new means of efficiency when it comes to documentation and i mean it from from healthcare to taxes to it could it, it could really change the way businesses operate and and really make them more efficient and and bring the costs down tremendously for companies in the long run as well as you know bring the the need down for for jobs uh, it could it could definitely reduce the value of, uh, the reduce the amount of jobs in some industries um, but it will also make, uh, you know, create other jobs as well. So it's a, a kind of a happy medium there. But the the main deal is that it makes efficiency in companies. So Thomas, I I think that blockchain technology is absolutely fascinating. And uh, one of the interesting things with blockchain is we've seen in the past few years, companies and corporations, you know, in Silicon Valley, have opened up what they call ICOs, and that's initial coin offerings. Uh, Can you tell us what ICOs are? And, you know, whether or not this is a smart investment, or whether or not we are going to see more stringent regulations with ICOs? An ICO is basically just a, a, a new means of, of funding startups, of, of funding companies. It, it, they range from different uh, sectors all over to, you know, companies that are just on the ground floor that that have no services or have no product, 
and just have concepts uh, and are basically, you know, your, your stand-up startups that are using an initial coin offering instead of an initial public offering to get funding for their, their idea or, or, you know, doing, doing the I, ICO instead of going through uh, Kickstarter or, you know, all those kind of crowdfunding platforms. And they're 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 cashing in on the cryptocurrency craze, and a lot of them are extremely speculative. Like I said, they don't have a lot of them don't have products or services right now. So how can they possibly you know make revenue and profit right out the gate? Uh, you know, and and the amount of time it takes for them to acquire all these funds and investments and, and turn them around to the marketplace. Uh, the the price is just bound to go down initially because they have no revenue. Um, so a lot of the times, the vast majority of the time, they're going to be worth less than, you know, if you had ha- held on to the initial investment or had the initial investment in Ethereum or, or Litecoin or Bitcoin instead of putting it in their hands for the time being. Um, that's not to say that a lot of these won't be successful down the road, but, I mean, it's, it's hard to make money when you don't have a, a means of doing it. Again, we have Thomas Manning, CEO of Crypto Bay uh, Holdings, and, and Thomas, uh, you know, I really appreciate you coming on and, and you know, kind of giving us the uh, the lowdown on cryptocurrencies because it's something that I've been fascinated with, you know, especially just watching the the fascination of it from uh, you know the media and, and people who you know I didn't even knew no you know I didn't even know that they knew what cryptocurrencies were uh, discussing it. It's it's now a topic at lunch. It's a topic when you go out to a bar. Uh, it's very fascinating for me. And again, I mentioned that you are the CEO of Crypto. Bay Holdings. Uh, can you kind of tell us what you do uh, with Crypto Bay Holdings? What we're focusing on uh, basically in the beginning stages of, of the company is, is cryptocurrency education and just providing a means for you to, to teach yourself and, and giving you some direction on where to get started. And in uh, the grand scheme of things, people people want to know where their money's invested and they want to be able to understand it. And that's, the, that's kind of the biggest thing that's kept a lot of people out of it is they don't have the, the basic understanding of what they what this stuff is and it, and it is hard to grasp but uh I, I feel like i'm pretty pretty solid at, at spelling it out so that anyone can understand it and uh i'm i'm, I'm uh, pretty uh proud of this little brag that i i convinced an 80 uh 80 year old man the, the most decorated uh pilot veteran of uh, our country's time that is still living to to invest in bitcoin so i feel like if i can make a an 80-year-old gentleman uh, put put his uh, money into some ones and zeros on online. That I, th- I think I can convince anybody that has. Uh, you know, a, a decent education <laughs> background. That's very fascinating. And for our listeners out there that, you know, kind of want to learn a little bit more about cryptocurrencies or, you know, maybe they want to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to do that? Uh, the best way would be through email. Uh, you could email me at coin at crypto virtual wallet dot com. That is a uh, uh, an offshoot website that I've already created it uh, created that has some uh, some up and coming technology and stuff that we're going to be using to to help people out uh, with their beginning stages. Um, so that that would be the best way to reach me is coin at crypto virtual wallet dot com. Make sure to check that out and uh, definitely email Thomas if you have any questions on cryptocurrencies. But uh, Thomas, thanks for coming on, man. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Austin. I, I really appreciate this. Closing time. 
two great interviews there. Thank you to Chris Yandel and Thomas Manning for joining us on the podcast. And uh, Jeremy, let's start off with Chris's interview on college athletics and amateurism. Of course, uh, right now, this is you know essentially bowl mayhem. This is bowl week where we see so many different college football games, uh, players getting you know different gift vouchers for attending these bowl games, getting gift packages. Uh, at the same time, ESPN is raking in millions and millions of ad revenue uh, on these games. And I, I thought Chris brought up some interesting points, essentially saying that schools and universities, as well as coaching staffs, were looking at some of these athletes as property. Uh, to me, that was sort of a, a fair statement. It was an alarming statement, but I thought it was 100% fair. And I don't know, the, the more and more that I, I spoke with Chris, and uh, you know, we even spoke after uh, you know, finishing the, the interview segment, and he actually sent me his research paper that he was working on, and I was reading it, and I don't know, it sort of makes you a little bit angry that you know, just the history of the NCAA just taking advantage of students. And and it's not like this is something that is recent, you know, the call no, to pay players. This on, is yeah. something that has literally been going on for nearly 100 years. Yeah. So I, I go back and forth on this issue. You know, I don't I don't know if I would characterize uh, players as property. Um, certainly, I know there are institutions that are some of them are worse than others when it comes to treating players um, certain ways. And in my mind, there are too many rules the NCAA has for players in terms of accepting benefits. And they're hypocritical. And they're, they are very hypocritical. And so, you know, when I was listening to this discussion you guys were having, one thing that was coming to my mind was the case of Silas Nacita. Salsa Nacho. Yep. that's right. He's running back for Baylor, uh, kind of a small guy. And he, he had a real inspiring story coming to the school. You know, he um, came out of a lot of poverty, um, came, he was essentially homeless at one point. Yeah, he had a rough family life, yeah. went to school at Cornell, had academic scholarships, I guess, but uh, he wanted to play big time college football. Right. was a walk on at Baylor, had issues being able to pay for Baylor. So he had to enroll at MCC taking online classes. And that's sort of where the controversy came in with Silas. He accepted an apartment, an apartment, a family and, friend, and, and income to get food and other things. I mean, the guy, the guy, literally he, had nothing. Yeah. And keep in mind, Silas was not a scholarship athlete. Right. He was not getting school paid for by you know the the Baylor Bear Foundation. He was not getting uh, a food stipend. He was not getting a full cost of tuition. He was a walk on, which means he has to pay his own way. Right. And he was homeless. He was he was sleeping on a couch for a while. Right. And the NCA uh, investigated him, and and you know, I, I think I don't know if they threatened to penalize the university or or, or what it what it ended I, yeah, up being, but I, um, he had to leave. He had to leave the university essentially because he quote unquote accepted improper benefits. And I just that's so ridiculous. And um, I mean, whether you agree that payers should be played or not in situations like that, this is a this is an instance where the rule where, where the spirit of the law is not being applied and it's and it's being applied in a legalistic way that just hurts people. Well, it's kind of like Perry Jones, another yeah. Baylor example. After his freshman year, the NCAA found out that his mom, uh, I think when he was in seventh or eighth or ninth grade, something like that, accepted seven hundred dollars from his AAU coach because she could not pay her mortgage. Right, and, and ultimately, she paid him back within you know a few months. It was reasonable, uh, but the NCAA came in and said that they were going to suspend him for the first seven games of the next season because he, his family accepted an improper benefit. Like, are you kidding me? Right. I mean, it was, and, and, it was rent money. And, and do you do you think the the NCAA picks and chooses who, which which people they go after? No, or do, I, do think, you think I think I think I think there's different complexities. I think sure. some of the some of the cases, for example, we see the FBI investigation with. Uh, several schools going on right now, uh, w w especially with college basketball and Adidas. 
those are more complex cases, right? Things are a little bit more buried. I think those instances of like, hey, this person's, you know, getting free housing, I think those are a little more cut and dry. And so it's easier Ooh. for the NCAA to investigate. You know, there's there's not as much red tape or it, it's not hidden as much. I don't know. I, I, well, I have well, issues with that. You know what I'm thinking about? I'm thinking about there was some, there was some sports blog that it was uh, Alabama. Alabama football is the is the coolest car dealership you'll ever visit or something like that. And it had all these players it's like big red sports and imports with uh, Oklahoma. A few years ago yeah. So you have all these players at Bama that are driving around in pretty expensive cars. And you're, I mean, you know that a lot of them are coming from very humble backgrounds. And so you kind of right. wonder like where, like where is this coming from? And so there, there's, I, I think there are probably some ways to get around those rules, but they end up just, they, they end up doing far too much. And so I, I don't, I don't know if I if I agree with paying players. I do think that they should receive some form of compensation commensurate, you know, commensurate with the value they provide at the university and certainly, you know, the media apparatus that uh, profits from them. Because right now, I mean, even if you were to take the value of their college degree, it does not it, it does not equal the amount of value that some of those players bring to those programs. Absolutely. So, yeah, I mean, the, your college degree, let's just take let's just take uh, a state school for instance, where your tuition's $20,000 a year, okay? That's not not including room and board. That's eighty thousand dollars. Okay, over four years, that is not even close. Let, let, let's say that you're a you're a star running back. That's not even close to the value you're bringing to the school if you're winning football games, right? Um, you know, between TV ratings, ticket sales, everything. I mean, the player should see a cut of that at some point. Yeah, and especially especially if they're coming from a humble background where they haven't seen that kind of you know where they might be in a position where they not only need that stuff but. Um, you know, they need to to learn how to manage money, how to work with money, right? And that wouldn't that be an opportunity for them? See, and how see to... that's something that I thought, I thought I thought Chris brought it up, and you know, talking about how some of these players during the football season, under his model, would only attend a maximum of what six hours of class, and then sometimes they wouldn't even attend class during the football season because they would be employed, right? Yeah. They'd be getting funding. I don't mind that. I think that's like a good option because you're representing. The university, if you do elect to take classes, you're still doing a minimal course load. You're not taking 18 hours and trying to well, cram so much in. But And this is what I really liked about, about that plan is because it's more realistic for what's actually happening. Right. I was in several classes with athletes in like the sociology department, not ragging on sociology, but there were a lot of athletes in there, right? And the teachers, they either made the class a lot easier for everybody so the athletes could pass, or they just wrote in the grade book different grades and what they actually got there were several guys like on Not the track yeah there was the guys on the track team that showed up to maybe four or five classes during a semester and i know that they passed i um, will i will say i i was sort of a beneficiary well, i'm gonna give you two examples one in high school i was sort of been a beneficiary of grade changing um i was in calculus my senior maybe it was junior year uh, but anyways i was in debate right and we had a policy that you know, we, we had like X amount of tests per year and we could make one up or drop a test or something like that. And I had a bad grade on a test. I think I got like a 65 because I am terrible at math and it was like an AP, it was like an AP calculus class. Right. So I had spoken to my teacher and I was like, look, for the progress reports, it, I knew it wouldn't be on the report card. Mm -hmm. I was like, for the progress reports in order to stay eligible for this like debate tournament, I need you to drop that. <laughs> and did he? 
Yeah, she did. Oh, she. Okay. Yeah. So, so, she, so she dropped it. And ultimately, wow. I think I got like a B in the class or something like that. But it was it, it was like I knew I was going to be fine. I had a proven track record of like getting things done. But I was like, look, if, if I need in order to compete this weekend, I, I need this dropped. Yeah. Um, in college, I could tell you that I was in a communications class, and the uh, the, the the professor, I, I don't know if I can call her a professor. She was she didn't have her PhD, uh, but she. Her husband was the director of operations for the football program. So, of course, there were a lot of athletes in the class. Mm -hmm. And I remember them getting extremely high grades, you know, like high A's on presentations, like speeches in which they were, one, looking at notes, two, forgetting their lines, three, stuttering the entire time. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that, that doesn't surprise me one bit. That's, you know, it's funny. My... One one of these professors, one of these classes, like seemingly knew what he was doing. He he like made no bones about the fact that his class was going to be easy because he had a number of athletes in there. But he was like, "Let's get one thing out of the way." It was actually the sociology of sport, believe it or not. <laughs> and he was like, "Let's Surprise. get one thing out of the way." Um, student athletes are not student athletes; they are athlete students. 100%. And let's let's be honest: the current system is not working. So you know, he says something along the lines of like, you know, "We've got to adapt to what we need to do," and you know, there are several schools that even go so far as to, you know, intimidate teachers who won't do this kind of stuff, who won't just make their classes easier or change grades or anything like that. I mean, I think Florida State, North Carolina, right, were two schools that got in trouble for... North Carolina did not get in trouble because they ran a great legal campaign. That's right. But, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, but okay. Academic well, fraud. Yeah. Yeah, they, well, they, they had <clears> a great something attorney. something spoke about. But yeah, but yeah, it's, it's like, I mean, this stuff goes on everywhere, right? And I think to his point, we have to, I think we, we need to adopt a new standard that's more realistic to what's actually happening, right? Because yeah. he talked about a lot of these players, like they're not even prepared out of high school to come into college. And all of a sudden we put them in this environment where we're expecting all this of them. Th that was also something that I was going to suggest yeah. a few moments ago that I forgot is a lot of these student athletes are coming in and, and we see this in the NFL too. Like when these players get multi-million dollar contracts right out of college, a lot of them go broke, you know? I yeah, think they, if, they don't, they don't like know. Like three out of every four yeah. football players goes broke within six years of finishing the NFL. It's because they don't know how to manage money, right? right? They've got all these people and their family back in there, uh, you know, the neighborhood that they grew up that never got out that are saying, hey, look, look, I can, if you give me this much money, I, I know I can invest it in this mm -hmm. company. A lot of them go broke. They they have lavish spending habits. So I think there needs to be some sort of money management class for these athletes in college to just prepare them. And if that's not a college thing, that's something that the NFL needs to do, something that the sports leagues need to do, uh, you know, just so they don't end up broke, uh, which... It's sad. I know the NFL does something like that for all new players. It's like a rookie. Yeah. Or something yeah. Like yeah, think, yeah. But it's not, it's obviously not enough, you know? And yeah. so there, there's a difference between like a, a semester long course and a two hour. Right. And session. a two hour workshop. Exactly. So, uh, but I, I'm, I'm that the Silas and Sita case changed my viewpoint on some of the NCAA rules. You know, I, I used to not really give them much thought and used to think, well, if you're breaking the rules, you're breaking the rules. Well, here's right. The deal. If we remove amateurism from college athletics and these players are paid, are you still going to watch games? Yeah, of course I'm still going to watch games. So what does it it's not going to affect anything. If the, only, anything. the only thing it affects is the corporations and the athletic budgets. That's it. Right. Um, the product in the field is not going to change. Well, and, and you know, I, I've had this thought for a long time that if, you know, the NFL, you know, it's it, the NFL is not going away. But if the NFL ever were declined to a point where it's not as feasible as it is now, you know, it's not like the kind of the household uh, institution that, you know, everyone gathers on the TV and watches Sunday night football, Thursday night football, you know, Sunday afternoon football, whatever, um, that 
colleges and universities, um, because of the popularity of college football, will continue that, but it would have to morph into something different. I mean, and, for the longest time, college football was way more popular than yeah, the NFL. Right. And I mean, I think it was like the 1970s in which we started to see that switch. Right. And so my thought has always been, you know, if you make college professional, if you actually you, you, you wake up and you and you take the blinders off and you realize that this is a professional sport, you start paying players what they're worth, then you know, this can just be a part of their career instead of a this sort of really messed up stepping stone to the next level, which might not be all it's cracked up to be once and, they get You know, there. maybe if you do pay players, you, maybe you don't pay them all, right? Maybe you have, do sort of something like with the baseball model, which I think is extremely flawed in college athletics. So first off, baseball, Major League Baseball, I think does it right. Major League Baseball has a rule that you can either get drafted out of high school or if you go to a four-year college, you cannot get drafted again until you're, after your junior season or you turn 21. But if you decide to go to a junior college, you can get drafted the following year. So I think that model works, right? Uh, something that I think college baseball does wrong that, I don't know, maybe if you were to put the pay-to-play model in place, college baseball, they only have, I think it's like 12.1 or 13.1 scholarships that they have to distribute between their entire team. And that's 35 guys. So not every guy is getting a full scholarship. Right, right. Maybe there's something like that with you know college football, right? There's like an 85-man roster. Maybe you say, we only have enough money to pay 40 people, right? And so these 40 people, your star star recruits are going to get fully paid, right? But then maybe your like, second-string linebacker only might you know get like half of that portion or something like that. But then the rest is like subsidized through, you know, scholarships or something like yeah, that. Yeah, I, I wonder how that I wonder how that affects team dynamics though. You know, I wonder how if that creates problems. I mean, I know that at the professional level, you know, you don't have to deal with that necessarily, yeah. but I wonder if at a college level uh if that wouldn't create more more problems than it solves, but I think ethically speaking, it's it's gotten to the point where um if you're just looking at the bare bones money and what's what's actually being generated by these players and they're not seeing a dime of that you know, uh, excluding their tuition and whatever else, you know, um, I think that it's, it's unfair. And Here's a thought. What about just giving these athletes like Bitcoin? <laughs> Bitcoin? Um, I actually, you know, save some, some catastrophic correction, which many people think it's due for. I think that actually might not be a bad idea. All joking aside on whether or not we should pay college athletes, college football players and Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies. Uh, first off, great discussion with Chris. And I thought your points were very insightful as well, Jeremy. Uh, but uh, cryptocurrencies, uh, the discussion that we had with Thomas, it's just fascinating. I mean, you said that, you know, there's sort of concern about a bubble and, you know, whether or not it'll pop. But if you look at what Bitcoin has done within the last month, it's up 151%. This entire year, it is up 2000 361% in Litecoin, which I'm personally invested in. Uh, in just one month alone, it's up 380%. Just this year, it's up nearly 9,000%. And there's a lot of speculation that, you know, this is a bubble, it won't last. Uh, but I don't know. I think this is something people should take seriously, cryptocurrencies. Uh, you know, there's a lot of thought behind it saying that you know how can we actually have faith and confidence in a product that we don't know that it actually exists like there's there's nothing backing it yeah and i th that's it is so weird th to think because the 
initially the most confusing thing to me about Bitcoin was what gives it value, right? And you have to think, well, what gives anything value? It's that people believe that it has value. Uh, that's the way that you, it's the way the dollar works, the way the pound works. Um, you know, when we decoupled from the gold standard here, I don't know how many decades ago, uh, the U.S. dollar is essentially it. it, it you, we have so many dollars in circulation right now. It's it's what people think. You know, it's it's confidence that drives its value, right? And so. But I at least know that the dollar is backed up by something, right? It's the, the, the GDP of the United States, the, the federal government making good on its debts, things like that. Although at this point, who knows <laughs> if they're going to do that. But Bitcoin is literally created out of nothing. And its only value is driven by people who, you know, uh, who think it has value. And there are enough people that think it has value to drive up that limited supply, the price up to where it is right now. I, I think it's fascinating to me because I first heard about Bitcoin in 2011. I was actually visiting a friend out in California, and he was telling me that uh, one of his buddies, who uh, I think owns like a pharmaceutical company, uh, has done very well for himself at a young age, uh, suggested that he invest in Bitcoin. And he was telling me about you know his thought process on you know whether or not he should invest, and uh, he was considering investing I think a thousand to fifteen hundred dollars, something like that, in, in Bitcoin at the time. Decided against it. And we had this discussion saying, you know, I don't understand how this like internet money works. I mean, what sort of security is it? But now, granted, the last five, six months, I've done a lot more research into cryptocurrencies. And I realized there's some amazing technology behind these currencies. And that's the right. blockchain technology. Protect, which, protects you from hackers. Right. And all sorts. No, no, not all of them are protected from hackers. There are a few no, of them so, that fall so it's, into it's it. The but, wallets. It's the right. wallets, you know, like, uh, for example, Coinbase, which is a wallet that I use. Uh, that's essentially how you store your currencies. Now, there are different apps out there that you can download and utilize. Some require encryption, others don't. Uh, those are vulnerable to hacks. The blockchain is not. I mean, the blockchain, it's its insane. So there's like 21 million Bitcoins that it potentially can exist, right? And I think right, right. now only like 40 to 50% are actually in circulation. Right. So in order to mine those and get those out... Uh, to strengthen the blockchain, they've got all these like supercomputers going around crunching these mathematical equations. Right. And once that equation gets cracked, twenty-five Bitcoin get released. Right. And so but no, it's no, insane. It's now, like who solving gets complex the, code. Now, now for people who don't understand that, where does so does the person who owns the computers right, that okay. mined it? So they're the ones that get the bitcoins. Correct. Yes. So say that you and I were to set up a supercomputer, a mini supercomputer in the Weekly Brew Studios, right? And we were just to run algorithms and math problems to try to solve these complex equations. Once we solve them, we would be rewarded with twenty-five Bitcoin. Right. If which, we if we actually crack the equation, yeah. Right. Okay. And as you know, more and more Bitcoin get released into circulation, these equations become more more and more complex. They require more powerful computers. So it used to be where you could essentially just mine on, say, a laptop. Right. You can't do that anymore. Exactly. I, I'm. This is one of those like I wish I had a time machine moments and. You know, I often have those when I think about things that I could have, like in college, like I think all the, all the stuff I could have invested in back in 2004, yeah. right? When all the stuff was in its infancy, when you could buy, you know, when, when Bitcoin was like, what, like eight cents, uh, like a coin or something like that. I mean, it was just exceed, exceedingly uh, cheap and, and undervalued, I guess it was. Well, I mean, think about, all the, think about all of the stocks that are doing well right now. I mean, Apple, what if you invested that, you know, oh my gosh, back, back in the 90s, back in the 90s I mean, when they were, when they were that, getting, what if you were to do it before the iPhone? Like for, when, yeah, that's, when, when just the, the iPod came out, yeah. right? I mean, or Google, what, remember Google's initial. So here's, here's actually yeah. a funny story. Uh, the Google IPO, I think was $85. 
Um, it was 60 or $85, I can't remember, but this was back in uh, spring 2005. Uh, I was really heavily interested in this macroeconomics class that I was in. It was AP Macroeconomics. We sort of did a stock market game where we had like $100,000 and we were doing day trading, so there's like no fees or anything like that. It was just play money, essentially. I did very, very well uh, in that class, and so I was very, very interested. I actually won our class in terms of the most ROI. Of course, it's like fake money, so it's not you know, anything uh, serious. But one of the companies that I was looking at at the time was Google, their IPO. And I was telling my grandfather at that time to um, consider investing in Google. And he was like, you know, I, I think, Austin, this is just more of the, you know, just the, uh, I, I think it's more of just the dot-com bubble i think it's going to crash and he had good reason to he believe good that reason right that. i mean because if you look at the dot-com bubble of 2000 you, you think it's a yeah, dot-com like, bubble. Sure. You, don't, you don't realize that it's a technology company and, sure. and jeremy you've got it pulled up right now but what is one share worth of one google share worth? of google uh is worth a thousand seventy one dollars so imagine putting in a thousand i don't know getting you know a thousand shares that's a huge roi and that's the same thing that kind of interests me about these cryptocurrencies right is I think it's a little bit more than just a currency, right? I mean, of course, Bitcoin is trying to be the gold standard. Litecoin is trying to be the silver standard, a complement to Bitcoin. But the technology behind these is extremely fascinating to me. Right. And it, well, and, and beyond that, I mean, let, let's let's talk about the relevancy for, for everyday consumers. Do you think, you know, and as I said earlier, if, if there's some correction coming to Bitcoin, do you think that, the, so let's say that Bitcoin declines 50% in its value in the next couple of weeks. Do you think that Litecoin and your Ethereum or whatever it's called, um, do you think that all of those also suffer because of that? I mean, it's total speculation. In other words, is there a Bitcoin bounce for other I think so. currencies? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I would, but, I would but think we've that that's... Looked, we've looked at like the last, you know, few weeks and Litecoin has been independently doing quite well against uh, Bitcoin. And, and there's some speculation that the reason why this is the case is because people are looking at the price of Bitcoin and think it's too expensive. But Litecoin is a little bit more affordable, affordable so they can buy, you know, one, two, three, four, five, six coins I don't know. It's it's very speculative right now. But here's the thing. If you want to do research, if you want to get into cryptocurrencies, do research. Like don't just jump on a whim. You've got to you've got to watch charts, you've got to do your due diligence. But that's the same thing when you invest in anything else, right? Sure. If, I, if you want to be responsible with your money as as Thomas said and we really appreciate Thomas coming on, do your research, be due diligent. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking here at a story about the Winklevoss twins. If you'll, yeah, if yeah. for for people who saw the Social Network, you'll remember they were the rivals to Mark Zuckerberg, uh, who started Facebook. They had a rival uh, Facebook basically and got kind of overtaken. But they are the first Bitcoin billionaires. So they made a, an 11 million dollar investment way back in the day, and it has paid off exponentially for them. Now, here's a question: If you're the Win Winklevoss twins, right? Do you do you sit on that Bitcoin and do you let it ride, or do you sell? Do you sell and take your winnings and invest? It in others and, and well, I think, quote I think, unquote more more safe assets. So one, I I think they are being smart about it. Probably I I don't know what their financial situation is, but I assume they are probably like withdrawing, you know, some putting it into different funds, reinvesting, playing the dips, playing the highs, that sort of thing. Yeah. I, th I think they're being smart about it. I don't sure. think they're just like letting it stay in their and their in their you know Coinbase account and saying, all right, <laughs> right. go baby, go. <laughs> I think their financial situation is very good, right? Oh, of course. I, yeah, I mean, I, I, I would love I to have that's, a that, that, that's not the question. Um, 
So anyways, I, that's an absolutely fascinating discussion. I still don't quite understand how it all works. I, I understand the concepts, but like, it's like that, that emotional reality of having cash in your hand, right? That's different from having, oh yeah, cool. I know I have a, a Bitcoin, right? Yeah, exactly. And so to know that it's not backed by anything other than just pure confidence, that's, it's kind of scary, right? Yeah. It's just literally created a thin air. It's cool. I, I think it's it fascinating cool. to me. Yeah. And it's very, very fascinating. And it's it's going to continue to captivate the financial markets, especially if it becomes more and more mainstream, right. I think. And do governments try to regulate it? That's because as of right now, it, you know, Bitcoin is kind of, uh, I don't want to say like a dark currency, but it's a place where, you know, if you're trying to hide money, right? I mean, can't you do that technically? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's anonymous. Yeah, exactly. It's anonymous. It's like there's no, there's no... Federal Reserve overseeing yeah. uh, any of its management. So yeah. it's just that ledger that keeps Absolutely. track of who owns what. Yeah. So very interesting discussion. Uh, thanks to Chris Yandel for joining us talking college amateurism and uh, you know just providing some insight into the NCAA. Also thanks to Thomas Manning for joining us and then telling us what cryptocurrencies are, uh, why they've been in the news you know, the last few weeks, and, and what we can look forward to in the future of cryptocurrencies. But uh, if you want to follow our work, you can uh, just search Weekly Brewcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. And of course, subscribe to our website at weeklybrewcast.com. And uh, if you want to follow you know, our individual work, you can follow me at ASTAT, and you can follow Jeremy at FiestaBero8, and of course, Hunter Atkins at HunterAtkins35. Hunter has been a very, very very busy man uh, the last few weeks. He's had surgery. Uh, he's been covering the Rockets, uh, Astros during the hot stove meetings. Uh, very, very busy guy. So we hope to have him back on the show uh, here as we uh, get closer to the holidays. Uh, Jeremy, uh, it's, it's been a lot of fun. And if we uh, if we do not record again prior to Christmas, uh, just want to wish you a Merry Christmas, man. Absolutely. Merry Christmas to you, Austin, and to all of our listeners. Absolutely. And so until next week or until next time, on behalf of my co-host and co-founder, Jeremy Paxton, my name's Austin Statton. We'll see you next week. You've been listening to The Weekly Brew.